Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sherry Hood, uh, the pressing plant wine. Uh, it's July 18, 2019. We're in Sherry's home. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Sherry. We really appreciate this. Um, I'm going to start by asking, why wine? Why wine? That's such a big question. Um, ooh. Uh, so, for me, uh, most of my exposure to wine was in like, you know, going to rock clubs and stuff and wine was like really not very good. It was much safer to stick with like bottled beer. And uh, so um, at, at some point, my uh, ex-in-laws started to, to take us to meet us at um, like wine areas. And so we went and met them in Napa and Sonoma and I was living in New York at the time, and uh, we went out to Long Island to visit wineries, and they had a, a really nice wine cellar, mostly New World wines, but like nice, like aged wines. So there was really this great opportunity to get to to taste wine in different stages from different places, and it was so good, you know. <laughs> And um, and then visiting wineries, what was so cool was to hear the stories and to realize that um, wine involved this basic like farming aspect. And I, I actually grew up for like half of my life in Alabama mm -hmm. and my dad had a farm. It was like a hobby farm, but it was a large hobby farm. And so like I knew that farming was really tough. And so there's this like really basic thing of like farming and then there's also the chemistry and microbiology side of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's this craft, you know? And, um, and then there's a culture around mm -hmm. it as well. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> it was so multifaceted, you know, it was so interesting. And um, just that idea that it, it was not one thing um, made me more and more curious about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became the person that when there was a large group of people out at a dinner, you know, I worked in the wine industry, I used to manage bands and run record labels, American office. And so when there'd be a point where we would be going out, people would hand me the wine list, you know? And, uh, and if it was someone else's expense account, it might be like, <laughs> sometimes people gave me boundaries, you know, on it, that was fair enough. Um, but you know, that's how I tasted an Opus One wine, you know, and that's how I was able to taste some things and have an idea of um, what values sometimes look like, um, whether or not I agreed with that value, mm -hmm. you know, what value I put on it mm -hmm. and what I liked and watch my tastes evolve over time of like more um, big hearty red wines, you know, over time to being curious about things that didn't fit in that and were not just like yum wines, but were like interesting mm -hmm. and different mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and then like eventually, you know, like, like I just find like weird wines super interesting, you know, <laughs> like, like something they, they have a longer 
conversation and are more polemic in terms mm -hmm. of what people think of them and everything. So that's kind of how I got like interested in wine. And then uh, I was living in New York and I had, um, I'd been working in the music industry for a long time. And my partner at the time had, uh, was from, had lived in Portland and was living in New York with me. And it just became time to kind of like find a new place besides New York. Okay. And I had quit the music industry maybe a year before um, just kind of stopped loving music like like I still like I still loved it but it was very difficult for me to listen to without thinking about it in a business sense and that kind of ruined it for me mm -hmm. and so I needed a, a break from it so I could get that thing that I love more than anything back you know and um, so in looking at places we, we decided to come to Portland and um, I had I had a, I'd actually been, so for that last year when I wasn't, you know, when I, after I quit management, I was working at People Magazine in just kind of a filler job. I was the assistant to um, the, the New York chief and, um, and just enjoyed just kind of like going in and doing my job, you know, coming <laughs> home without a lot of homework, you know, a never ending type of thing. And, and they were one of those places that always gave me the wine list. And um, there was a writer there who, at my going away party, um, they actually, they gave me a gift certificate to Tina's um, <laughs> because, you know, I was coming out here and they knew how much I loved wine. And they, they said, uh, this woman said, um, I just picture you going out there and like learning how to make wine, you know, becoming a winemaker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here it was, like I'd been in New York for all my adult life and I was just like, that's crazy <laughs> you know like you're funny you know like what a nice idea you know and I came out here and um, I kind of did the same thing where I attempt for like a year just to like not drain my savings and like take all the pressure off of like what am I gonna do next mm -hmm. and um, after you know relative you know after some time I uh, went on the internet and kind of like looked for um, wine schools and UC Davis came up mm -hmm. and so I decided that I would apply. Um, it was a science degree and my whole family is in, uh, like I grew up with uh, physician parents mm -hmm. and um, other relatives in, uh, as a pharmacist and nurses and, um, and I did not want to go into medicine. You know, didn't interest me at all, and uh, because that was what all of our life was, and it was so busy and workaholic and everything. And uh, here, then, finding something that was actually a science degree when I love science, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. was great. Mm -hmm. So I applied. Um, I started to do my prereqs at PSU. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I could spend kind of more of a minimum time in California because I, I just kind of moved to Oregon, you know, in 99. And, um, and I liked being here. So I, um, so I did that for a couple of years, got my chemistry, physics, you know, all of that, a lot of pre-class courses for science, and then got accepted to Davis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they strongly encouraged that you... Um, do that you work in winery before you start taking classes about winemaking you know I was like mm -hmm. oh <laughs> I, uh, okay you know like hmm, how do I do that and uh, that that does seem like a good idea but that's scary 
And um, so uh, I had, I know this is, so this is like more than why wine, but um, uh, this, so I had a neighbor where I was living in Southeast mm -hmm. and her cousin's husband um, worked in vineyards, she said. So she invited us all over for dinner together and I, I met Mark Gould from uh, Ken Wright and he was so nice and he talked to me you know for a while about things and I, I asked him about um, I just said you know I'd really love to talk to some women in this industry mm -hmm. find out what this is like mm -hmm. and um, maybe if there's some areas I should really focus on to be like stronger in those areas mm -hmm. so he referred me to his friend Cheryl Francis mm -hmm. and um, and also to Lynn Penner Ash and so I called Cheryl and um, like within days, you know, she just said like, why don't you come out here and we'll have a talk, you know? So I went out and we sat in a, a, one of the trailers at Shehalem and, um, you know, and talked about this stuff. And I told her that I needed to do a harvest. And she said, you know, I, I already have my harvest crew set, but my friend Jimmy over at Will Kenzie, I heard he had a spot, so let me give him a call. So she calls Jimmy and she says, you know, I have this, I have this lovely woman here, and, you know, she's, uh, she needs to do a harvest and, um, you know, can I send her your way? And he's like, yeah, have her come now. So I went over to Willa Kenzie and I talked to him and, you know, told him like, like I didn't know anything, but I really wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then we started talking about music in Portland and stuff and totally bonded on on bands and things and um yeah and i did harvest at willa kenzie he was assistant winemaker at the time there laurent uh mm -hmm. he you know he worked for laurent and bernie and ronnie and um he was doing brooks at the time so i got to work on the brooks wines as well and um so yeah it kind of just like just this curiosity and interest and passion for learning about wine kind of led to and that seed the, that crazy seed that someone put in my head that I really didn't think I thought about a whole lot more. But then when I got bored enough, like typing for a living, I, uh, you know, like I was like, whoa, there's an idea. You know, that would be a lot more interesting. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So before we go on with that, sure. I want to back up just for a second, just because you have such an interesting pre-wine background. Sure. So let me talk about music industry in New York, how you, how you got into it, and just sort of some of the kind of highlights along the way, what, you, sure. what you're doing there. Um, I, I loved like music from a really early age. My mom took me to see the, um, the monkeys when I went for my fifth birthday. <laughs> Apparently I fell asleep during it, but, um, which did not mean that I didn't love it, she said, but, um, and music was just always a passion, seeing bands. And so, uh, when I went to school at Rutgers, I, they had a college radio station that was great. And uh, I listened to it and heard that they needed volunteers. And I went in and I re-alphabetized their entire music library because I'm like that. And uh, which I know from our discussion about how the order my wine uh, records are in are not not quite. But um, but I was more like that then, and I loved it. You know, I got to see all the records, touch them, and, um, and I ended up uh, being the music director of that station and um, and DJing. And uh, my job was to talk to, part of my job was to get records from other labels, mm -hmm. from labels, and then to talk to them because once they sent it to you, they wanted to have conversations with you about them and mm -hmm. find out if you were playing them or not, or why not, um, <laughs> and, or how you could help. 
and I got offered a job while I was in college uh, at the station to work in New York mm -hmm. um, to promote records to college radio stations. So um, my whole day, so I left school actually, um, Rutgers is only about 45 minutes outside of New York, so mm -hmm. I, I moved to New York and, and uh, worked for this company called Thirsty Ear and got to call other radio stations all day and talk to them about music and made some amazing friends who are still my friends now, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it was like the best job ever. And so the business of music didn't seem like a gross place. It seemed like a place where you get to share the enthusiasm and excitement for for all of it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and then when I left there, one of the, we, we worked, we represented or promoted a number of different labels, a, a bunch of different independent labels that kind of needed that help but didn't have a full-time person to do that. And so uh, two of the labels were Beggar's Banquet and 4AD Records. And <clears throat> Beggar's Banquet and 4AD are tied. There's a one co-owner, one mm -hmm. owner that partly owned 4AD at the time. Um, and now uh, owns, I think, all of it. But um, so I mentioned to Ivo from 4AD that I was going to be leaving this company. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if you're leaving, then we're leaving. Maybe we should talk about this, you know? And so at 23, I was hired to open the American office of 4AD Records in New York. And I was just like, are you sure? Are you, are you sure? You know, like this is a person who doesn't uh, balance their checkbook and is all of a sudden, you know, having a business account there and, and uh, a lot of money put into it in order to promote records. And mm -hmm. I was the only employee for a while. And then, uh, so I did all, all aspects, um, publicity and retail and video and helping with licensing and uh, touring. And, and all of those things, and it was just like, I was in heaven. Like, I was just, it was such a dream. I actually offered at the beginning to uh, lower my salary to make sure that this office worked, and they were like, you are not good at this one. <laughs> you know, you are not gonna negotiate any licensing deals. <laughs> I just, like, I just couldn't believe it, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, so I did that for a while. I got to work the first Pixies records. You know, the beginning of the American bands on on 4AD, Throwing Muses, their first records. Um, uh, but I also get to got to work with um, Dead Can Dance and Cocktail Twins, and um, yeah, it was amazing. And uh, and also working for someone, you know, I've always really. Uh, my first mentor, um, the way that the company worked was <clears throat> that, excuse me, that um, it was just so artist driven, you know, like it was really designed around letting artists, musicians express themselves, you know, it wasn't like hit oriented and it was trying to work into the whole uh, business, but, but because it had to, but at the same time, it was like really focused on that. And that, that left such an impression on me of like small, independent, uh, maintaining one's like sense of integrity, um, being true to oneself, letting others be true to themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really, really great. And then after that, I started, I left there to start managing one of the, one of the 4AD bands, Ultra Vivid Scene. and. I had actually been managing a band called Velvet Crush at the beginning and got them signed to Creation Records. And um, so I uh, started managing bands. Um, and Ivo, 
uh, you know, even though I had left 4AD, was such a champion and sent bands my way. He called and said, you know, there's this band Stereo Lab and like, I think you should work with them. And, um, you know, I listened to them and was like, oh, wow, you know. And uh, so it was just kind of, I, and I ended up managing them, you know, from, from almost the start, from the very early days, from before the first, like, actual studio album. And uh, a band called Cranes, who were very 4AD-like in the terms of their audience. Like, I knew exactly, you know, who their audience would be, how to, how to work with them. Mm -hmm. um, later, Geffen approached me uh, with um, a, a friend, Ray Farrell, who used to be at SST. Um, in my college radio days, I used to talk to about, like, all the SST bands that were so amazing. And um, so he worked at Geffen, and uh, Kurt Cobain had had um, had talked about like some of his favorite bands ever that had influenced him mm -hmm. and uh, two of those bands were The Raincoats mm -hmm. in the UK and Pell from the Northwest and so uh, I ended up working with both of them kind of on their resurgence you know on their on their comeback um, so yeah so that's that's kind of where I came from and then I got kind of uh, burned out on working so closely with bands mm -hmm. and as I said about that music part, but like also just um, It's it's a tough business, you know being an artist is tough and It's hard for artists I think to ever have reached a pinnacle of enough and then it's very hard to be working for them mm -hmm. um, to be trying to reach that and so I took a break um, yeah, and, and I, that's when I stopped working specifically mm -hmm. with music. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time I came out here, I found like enough distance and like that love for it again. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So you got here, you, you, you meet uh, Cheryl and Lynn and, and Jimmy Brooks. Uh, tell me about sort of your first harvest experience, your first time getting your hands dirty with wine and, and what sure. it was about it that made you want to keep doing it. It did not make me want to keep doing it. <laughs> Or the opposite of that. I will tell you. No, it was uh, it was so different from from what I thought that it would be like. You mm -hmm. know, my um, as someone who did not know what any of that equipment like looked like, or even really the process of it. You know, aside from going through tours and you get this really quick walkthrough and like, oh, ah, you know, um, but to to see it happening and uh, it was that was two thousand and it was a year of like so many pincher bugs and uh, it was like I remember one of the things that I learned during harvest there is that if you put rubber bands around your pants that they can't crawl up your pants as easily and so I remember this being like this like you know this kind of like you're the locust you know like, <laughs> oh my god they're everywhere you know and they would be everywhere we'd be having lunch and someone would be like oh you know like so anyway pull one <laughs> off of your head and you know um, so, um, so it was really amazing though to get to to work with Jimmy in particular because he really took the time as being uh, someone who who'd, who'd started his own thing of like here's why I do things mm -hmm. you know and could certainly speak to why Willie Kenzie you know what the what that um, their philosophy was but like the really hands-on part that I got to stay after and work on. Mm -hmm. um, and but mostly in my harvest i mean i was also going to school at the same time and driving back and forth and um 
and it was long hours and I cleaned a lot. I cleaned a lot of tanks, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I had this thing where I just, I, I was tired a lot, you know, having never done this, not being like physically up to it and then, and then also with school and uh, I remember I kept like picking up the hose and I just couldn't get the order right of it and I would often spray myself in the face <laughs> and just feel like such an idiot, you know, like I'm never going to get this, you know. And then with the cleaning, I was also wet all the time, like my clothes were always wet, I was always cold. Um, it was, uh, I feel like even to this day, like most scars I have on my body are from like some, you know, piece of stainless steel that I like ran into or um, uh, dropped or something. And, um, but it was this really great reality check, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I also got to see like what it was like to work at a winery in Oregon, um, which was that we always stopped and all had lunch together, mm. you know? And like we stopped, and um, my next harvest when I when I was going to Davis and I worked at uh, Pine Ridge mm -hmm. to get some experience there, and um, that was a very different experience. You know, much bigger, corporate owned. Um, did not stop for lunch. You know, did not really have much winemaker contact or contact with the winemaker. Um, so so this experience was really great and important for me to understand what it might look like coming back here, being in Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So what was your next, so once you got through Davis and, and, and kind of decided this is what you wanted to do, or, or, or when did you decide this is what you wanted to do, and kind of what were the next steps after that? Well, I want to actually say that one thing, one, I forgot about like this, this one piece of advice that I got actually from different people at Willa County was that uh, as I knew I was going <clears throat> to be going to Davis, Jimmy really gave me this advice uh, that he felt strongly about, which is that I didn't need to go to school for it and that, um, that his experience was to get experience and to work at wineries a lot. And I had already applied and I had never finished school the first time and it, you know, broke my mother's heart. And uh, <laughs> so I was really happy to have found something to go back to school for and I wanted to learn this other side of it. And both Laurent and Bernie were like, go to school. Like, go to school, learn this stuff, like do it, you'll come back. Um, and the reality was that when I went, when I got to Davis, the reality was that it, pro it was really that advice was somewhere in between, you know, that I should have gotten more experience before I went to Davis so that I would have that, these questions to say like, what happens when a wine looks like this? Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't there. So I learned all of this there through books and through professors um, and through One Harvest. And, um, but at the same time, like, I was so glad I went there. Like, my professors were amazing. It was so interesting. And it really helped me to understand, you know, what to look for to mm -hmm. keep wine from going bad, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and some style issues and what some general, uh, kind of, like, busted some myths, you know? Like, you, like, you always do this, you never do that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you do what you think is the right thing for the wine. And um, I know there's some criticism uh, that often comes up of Davis students or, have, you know, um, people coming out of there that you're going to make this, like, really clean, boring wine. But it's, that's not what the emphasis was. Mm -hmm. It was just giving all of us the tools to be able to work in a winery and not um, let a very expensive product go to waste. Sure. You know? Sure. So, um... So I came out of Davis, 
I had gotten a scholarship there to to uh, that would pay <coughs> part of my trip to going to do a New Zealand uh, harvest mm -hmm. internship, and so uh, so I graduated in two thousand three, and you know the we have opposite harvest, opposite um, seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, to New Zealand, so I couldn't go there until 2004. So I came back, and uh, I had been kept in touch with Sam and Cheryl. And this was uh, so 2003 was the first year that they both quit their regular jobs as winemakers. So Cheryl was at Shehalem, and Sam was at Archery Summit. Mm -hmm. And so this 2003 was the first vintage that they did in their own place, mm -hmm. um, and. That, uh, so I got to work for them in this beginning of a, of a winery situation and I learned so much, you know, and I continued to work for them uh, off and on for a couple of years uh, as, I, as I did more harvests. Um, so I would say that one of the most important things that I learned from them, they, they then became my, my mentors in mm -hmm. wine, mm -hmm. and um, when I came out of school, I was so worried that I wouldn't know what the right thing to do was, like the right answer. What's the right thing you do right now? Mm -hmm. And what I learned from working with Sam and Cheryl was that there isn't a, a, a right answer. Like they, you know, here they are, you know, a, a couple and they have very different ideas of what they like about wine, mm -hmm. where they think wine should go, what they think it should, you know, what needs to happen. And so that really opened my mind to this idea that, um, not that there isn't a wrong answer, because uh, it can be, but that, um, but that there are a lot of different ideas and it was way more open than I thought and that I, and they really encouraged me. We also shut down for lunch and we shut down for dinner. There were two of us. Uh, interning a guy from Australia named Rory and uh, and so we shut down when we had meals and we had worked really long days and I uh, stayed at their house a lot instead of driving back to Portland mm -hmm. and um, they let us make our own wine like they they let us take a couple of lots and we had the same lot and Rory and I got to do that the work with it the way we wanted to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, those were just amazing opportunities you know and um, and so yeah, it really opened up my mind, and and yeah, I was encouraged. What do you think of this? You know, and um, and also we played the game of um, options, where you uh, there's a wine that's all wrapped up, you taste it blind, you know, and um, and they give you three options, you know. Where is this wine from? Is it from this country, this country, this country? Or, you know, or, or lots of different questions, winemaking questions, but they get a little bit more complicated or more specific. And, um, and everybody weighs in. Nobody, only one person knows the answers. And, and that, like, was so interesting to be able to, like, think about it. Why do I think that? Why do other people think that? You know, it was this education that I didn't get at Davis. Mm -hmm. um, real world and also of... Of wine as um, as this kind of living, breathing thing, mm -hmm. you know, that's mm -hmm. evolved um, because of someone's involvement and touching it, and you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just really great. It was it definitely made me so excited to continue doing that, mm -hmm. you know. And that's when I felt like, wow, I'm a winemaker, <laughs> you know, like.
Um, before that, I had always kind of thought, well, you know, how do you know if you're a winemaker or not? Um, I, uh, what if I go to Davis and I'm not good at this? Mm -hmm. You know, what if I like learn all this stuff, but I'm just like, nope, this just doesn't work. Then I always thought like, well, there's marketing, there's, you know, there's sales. There's things that I've done in music that mm -hmm. I could do here, but, but luckily that didn't turn out to be the case, mm -hmm. you know, and I still could do those things and I'm doing those things now with my own <laughs> brand, you know, like, um, so it all comes around. Yeah. So, and then after working with them, so that was 2003 for Harvest. And then again, just kind of a continual, whenever I was home, I would go in and do what they needed. They didn't have a full-time employee. So I would just go in and rack or mm -hmm. um, top or, you know, whatever they needed. And um, I had keys to the winery. It was another one of those, like, I'm 23 and I'm running a record label. <laughs> and like, oh, wow, I like have, you know, like just get out of school and I like, can go into a winery, you know, crazy, <laughs> people are crazy. Um, and it's great. And um, so after that, I used my, uh, my um, scholarship to go to New Zealand. I worked in Marlboro. Mm -hmm. And then I came back uh, right away then in 2004. And I worked uh, at Archery Summit for Anna Matzinger. Mm -hmm and uh, did also some pre-harvest work for her and some post-harvest work and then um, decided to go back and I was going to do, I really wanted to work in central Otago mm -hmm. and so I got uh, a harvest at Chard Farm mm -hmm. which was, it's an incredibly beautiful place to work and it's like um, part of Lord of the Rings, you know what I mean, where it wasn't, you know, in New Zealand <laughs> but like, you know, it's just like Oh, it's you know the drive to work every day was uh, scary, but was also like oh, I can't believe I work in this amazing place. Look at the road, you know. Um, so, uh, but um, I always came back to Oregon to do harvest. Oh, so that year also 2005, uh, I did. So I worked at Chard Farm, but I decided I'd gone through a breakup and I was like I need to get out of Portland so I applied to a place in Australia for an early harvest so I did an early harvest in the Hunter it's very hot there and not like Oregon at all not like Willamette Valley and then went to Chart Farm and then came back in 05 and worked at Bethel Heights in the year that Ben uh, and Terry like worked together as winemakers for Ben to be taking over mm -hmm. and so I got to work with both of them um, and I'd already been friends with Ben and worked with him a little bit at Rex Hill. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it was really great. And the reason why I had done so many harvests was as a woman in wine, like I had never, <clears throat> I never really learned like how to fix things, mm -hmm. you know, how to do certain mechanical things. Mm -hmm. uh, I also was, like I felt like I really needed to be up to speed, to get up to speed on being able to do things in the cellar very quickly. I, I am uh, cautious and can be slow, like I could be then, and I think I've come back around to that now that I don't want to, you know, break anything. <laughs> but um, uh, I, yeah, I, and I knew that in order to work at a winery and to be like accepted as an equal by still by a still very male dominated dominant um uh or um industry i that i needed to be able to work as fast and hard as anybody else mm -hmm. so i did that mm -hmm. and i you know uh got up to speed got my chops you know mm -hmm. and um i also it was more and more reinforced that idea 
of how many ways there were to do things. So I got to see so much different equipment and, uh, and learn how to use it and why people used it. What, and then go to another winery and say, oh, use this there, why don't you use that? And find out why somebody else didn't want to use that equipment or do things that way. And, um, and it was a really great education, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had done harvest like so many times in a row that I had really missed spring anywhere, you know? <laughs> My clock was really off. Um, fall and winter, fall and winter, you know, and um, and so after working at Bethel Heights in 05, I applied for a, a position at Northwest Wine Company, and so I became the assistant winemaker, yeah. working for Laurent Montelieu uh, at Northwest Wine Company, yeah. and um, and I had to move to. McMinnville, and I lived in a little carriage house that Sam and Cheryl had in the back of their house, and um, you know, and learn more and more of how like how small the community is and how supportive mm -hmm. the community is, and um, you know, yeah, a lot of dinners with other winemakers that I was like, whoa, I love your wine, I can't believe it. I don't know what to say, you know, and um, and to just be a part of, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, and listen a lot. Tell me a little bit about the experience in Australia and New Zealand, uh, how it very differed. You talk about how different it was in Oregon. Uh, tell me about the kind of similarities, differences, and sort of what you picked up from that part of the world that, that you kind of carried with you. Sure. Um, I think, well, so New Zealand is a lot like the Oregon industry. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that it's much more common for, for most winemakers to have a degree in viticulture and enology in New Zealand, whereas in Oregon it was still, you know, there were pioneers, you know, and families that, uh, that they learned in that way, which didn't mean that they didn't also go to school for it, but um, that wasn't where the emphasis was, whereas New Zealand was much, felt much more New World winemaking to me. Um, and, uh, but also, and so in that way was not afraid to use um, more mechanical methods, mm -hmm. um, less small fermenters. Yeah. There were certainly some small fermenters, but the one and a half ton fermenters that we have are like, gosh, I remember going to Argyle and they had the, the really small totes, you know, and uh, um, like that, they would never do that there. You know, that just doesn't make sense. Um, Australia was really different. Um, in both Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, they don't have a separate migrant community who comes in and picks grapes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I helped pick grapes in Australia and that was amazing. You know, um, here no one wants me to pick grapes because I am going to be too slow, you know, mm -hmm. and probably cut off a finger. So I could be slow-ish and uh, that wasn't really why they brought me over there. So um, I got to have some experiences like that, um, which were really good. And yeah, but the Hunter Valley was also really community. I lived with someone, you know, they, I, I rented a room from someone who um, worked in sales and marketing at uh, Tower where I was working. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot, met a lot of other wineries and mm -hmm. um, got to interact with other interns and things like that. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, those are varietals. Um, you know, I haven't worked with Semillon or Semillon, um, as they as they say it, which is their wine. You know what I mean? Like in that in that area, that they have a very distinct way of making it. It was fascinating, you know. But it was not something that um, 
that I used in skills here, but it's great to see how things are done and um, with other varietals. And so certainly Pinot Noir was not what I was working on in the Hunter Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was a cool change. Mm -hmm. you know? sure. So tell me about the decision then to, to do your own thing. Uh, in addition to what, all the other things you're working on in Oregon Wine, well, when did you make the decision to start your own label? Um, after, after I worked at Northwest Wine, I uh, made wine for other people who owned a vineyard and I consulted, worked for places that, uh, as a consultant who didn't have any knowledgeist or um, or someone on hand who was pretty new, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and be able to help um, as much with the technical side of things mm -hmm. um, as as also input and experience at that point. And, um, and I enjoyed doing that, but there was some point when um, I, I started working, uh, Louisa offered me a harvest and I really wanted to just like, and I was consulting, but like I, I just wanted like to have, to make the money over harvest, which was really helpful and to have a different experience, you know, just to have this, like I go in again, you know, and I mean, you never go home after harvest, you know, but, um, <clears throat> just to sleep. Um, but, um, while I was doing that, my dad, who never really understood kind of like why I would choose a area like this of kind of like not um like being independent mm -hmm. which is what i was doing then um nor did he understand in the in the music industry he um he he'd asked me about it again and i told him like all the things i loved about it and he said you know how much would it cost for you to make some wine this year you know and i was like I don't know. I've never thought about it. And I had never thought about it for myself. I thought people who did that were also crazy. You know, like, like what, it's so much money. I would never have that. Like, what? Ooh, how would you do all those things? You know, mm -hmm. like, we're all the hats. And, um, and so, you know, I figured it out and I asked around about some fruit and Sam suggested a, uh, you know, much in the way that Ivo had suggested bands to me. And, you know, Sam was like, oh, you know, I know a couple of vineyards who are looking. I think that you would do well with this one, mm -hmm. you know, maybe call them and check them out. I did the budget. My dad's like, let's do it, you know? So, um, so yeah, that was the beginning, you know? And um, the when I didn't really, I'd always had it in my mind that if I, did something that it would be so cool to name wines after like songs or albums or bands like to bring music into it like mm -hmm. so much wine um it looks like it's french you know or it looks so serious you know or it's from people expect that you're part of a wine making family mm -hmm. you know and like you know generations and and that just wasn't my experience you know i can't make that up and uh, my experience was uh, i listened to a lot of records i worked with a lot of bands i still like love music and uh um and it's a part of everything i do so i had it in my head but i haven't really figured out how and what so i ended up um making some wine and bottling it and keeping it as shiners. And uh, while I 
with scrambling for like, what am I going to call it? What am I going to, how is it? Like, what's the focus? Like, what's my wheel? It's too all over the place. Like music, it's just too big. Like what's me? What, what says like, this is me about this wine. Mm -hmm. And I went and saw, uh, friends in bands that I used to work with and people in New York and we'd sit and I'd pour the wine and and we'd just talk about it. We'd just like throw out ideas and silly ideas and like um, bad ideas and and, uh, and cool ideas but like didn't make sense, you know, but and, uh, and it was so much fun this process. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Dave Rosencrantz, who used to be the label manager at Sub Pop, who I've just been so close with for so long, he came up with the name The Pressing Plant, that The Pressing Plant is where like records are pressed, mm -hmm. you know, and that wine is from a pressed plant. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's great. Let me sit with it. Cause I don't want it to be, I didn't want something to be like a joke. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. want it to be like, oh, that's so clever. You know, like I just wanted to be like, yeah, you know, like music, records, pressing plants, you know? And, um, and so that stuck and then, and I'd always had it in my head that I wanted to do, I mean, the idea of it was probably more inspiring to me than the idea of making my own wine, you know, like, because it could be fun, because this could bring something that seemed really daunting. Um, the idea of the steep learning curve, mm -hmm. not on the winemaking side at that point, but on the, um, on the small lot winemaking side, very small lot at the beginning, um, but also on the, um, on, on learning all this stuff that I never had to do to sell wine, you know, what you got to do in order to make more wine, you know. Um, but so this idea of it was just so fun and felt like me, it could um, keep me out of being afraid uh, that I couldn't do it because I was just could feel so me when we're talking about music. And so I had these ideas of like, oh, I want to, oh, uh, I, I didn't really want to make rosé, but I, uh, I want to make pinot. But, um, but I had all these ideas for pink wines. This, uh, this song, I was like, I want to call, call wine Pink Frost after this really beautiful, like sparkly song by the Chills from New Zealand. And, um, pink Flag from Wire is like an amazing album. Or the Pink Fairies, you know, this rock band from the 70s. And um, uh, Pink Moon from Nick Drake and Pink Turns to Blue from Husker Du. And, and I was just like, oh, pink. <laughs> I don't want to make pink one. Pink, you know, nothing wrong with rosé, but it's just kind of not where I wanted to start. But I was like, crap, you know, <laughs> what can I do with red or white? Um, and so it just became so fun mm -hmm. and something to talk about. I went through, uh, so basically I came up with this idea, I'm gonna call it, name it after like songs or albums, but most of the songs I chose were also album titles. So that kind of hedged the, you know, kind of left me for a little while, like, Okay, um, I can decide later. Um, and it turns out, after talking to attorneys, um, it turns out that song titles and album titles are not copyrightable. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, a great example is Let It Be From The Beatles and Let It Be From The Replacements. Mm -hmm. You know, two albums that you can still call that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it was okay for me to use those names. Um, by no means did I want to... Um, make money off of any of these people that were like idols and um, so inspiring, you know, mm -hmm. but I just, it was more of a, a tribute, mm -hmm. you know, and also 
I wanted to share that excitement. Like when I worked in music, that was like, I was really good at my job as long as I was talking about music that I was really, you know, excited about. And the bands I worked with, like that's how I chose. Whenever I was given a project to work that I was not excited about, but that I needed to do, I just wasn't, like it, it was very hard for me to like sell it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it's true, you know, for, for all of this. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how that idea came that made me then be like, I should do this, you know? And so um, I worked with the, uh, a lot of people were recommended, there's so many great designers in wine in the Willamette Valley, and I decided that I wanted to uh, go outside of that, and um, I met a, a, a guy at a going away party, this guy Rob Jones, who runs a label called here in town called Down the Road, called Jealous Butcher Records, and um, he worked with some of my friends in bands, and uh, he uh, he's just a great guy, and he's a graphic designer as well, and so we decided that uh, we'd work together on coming up with a label, and uh, I came up with a whole bunch of things that I just pulled off of the internet, different pictures that were didn't have a whole lot in common, you know, always, but um, usually a record. And then we looked at them and we played around with them and he came up with something that worked and we continued working. He came up with the logo and um, and it really suited the wine and then what, what we could change each time. And um, I think that the way that a bottle looks is really important and by no means should it... I remember there was like this wine a long time ago with like Marilyn Monroe on the cover with the the dress and everything and I thought like that's so it, it looked cheesy it looked like oh you're selling it on this you know mm -hmm. I didn't want to sell it on that I wanted though like people who also liked music and like why can't I, mean, I live in Portland you know I lived in Portland for 20 years now like it's I've lived here longer than I lived in New York and uh it should be like art and music and like fun and you know, so, and it, that's like things that I love. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be like that. So that's kind of how it came together, you know, was actually the, the idea and the project um, that was specific. It was not all over the place. You know, I would make the wine. Um, I would think about the process uh, and think about a song that it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have to say that I... I'm a big fan of mix mixes, mixtapes in the past, and mix CDs and also in the past, um, but of, of mixes and um, a playlist. And I made different playlists for the wine for different times, uh, different parts of the process. Mm -hmm. I wanted there to be really great music that, that gave me energy when I was working on it, that made me feel good. Um, I remember when I was working at Archery Summit that someone there was someone there who uh during this harvest that that played like really cheesy metal and i remember anna saying like i'm really sorry i know we all get to take a turn but this can't be good for the wine <laughs> and i was like it can't it, i know it's not good for us you know <laughs> And that went into the mix of like, yeah, then I'll, whenever I can, I'll play music while I'm doing it, play music to the wine. If I can't play music in my headphones, then um, play music during bottling um, and, and think about it, you know. 
And uh, there was there was one part where this is probably super long. I'm sorry. No. Oh no 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 no. no. Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is this one part. Um, I don't. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't ever shared about this publicly, but it's uh, this. So I was doing the 2012 Pinot Noir, and um, 2012 was a hot vintage, mm -hmm. and I had definitely and I worked with a vineyard who really needed a little longer time to get to ripeness like it was really important and the their own wines from that vineyard like they were very high alcohol and uh, you know I, I I worked with the vineyard and worked with the wine and um, and it was still hot you know and not just like that was the primary part of it but for me you know this was my first Pinot that I had done under my own label mm -hmm. and and I was just like oh I should have done this you know much like like when I cook I'm like oh it could have been better if I did this you know people are like oh, I love this I'm like oh you know could use more salt you know <laughs> and uh, there's something that is not self-effacing it's just uh I can see I really want it to be perfect it can't be perfect you know mm -hmm. and uh and I was really annoyed with that 2012 for a while while it was in barrel and uh so people were asking me like what are you gonna call it and uh my main name for it was gonna be i love the replacement so much and it was gonna be um unsatisfied one of my favorite songs um and uh and i remember uh my friend adam smith was like you can't call it that he's like i love that song but you can't call it that that's really bad for business <laughs> I, was like, I know i know you know, um, and I was going to name it after the Wipers for a Portland band, um, uh, Over the Edge, because it was that way. And, and it softened, you know, it came around. Mm -hmm. And by the time I, uh, you know, it was already, as I said, it was already bottled before I came up with the label and the name um, before I decided on it. And I ended up like, my love for that wine was that it was a punk rock wine. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I named it after I named it Smash It Up after the Damned. The Damned are like one of my favorite bands ever. My sister, like I have memories of my sister and I going to see them when we were really young, and um, I've met them over the years and just been a total, you know, fan. <laughs> and um, and I still go to see them. I still go to see them, and I'm like, oh, the Damned, you know, and um, and yeah, that's what it was, you know. And so when I when I poured that wine for people, I, I get to talk about the music. And so, uh, you know, I get to talk about that being, feeling like a punk rock wine to me, um, that it's, it's a little in your face. Uh, we did not use this term on the label, but it, you know, it's a little snotty. It's a little, you know, it's a little like, got some attitude, you know, and uh, doesn't really care. And it is what it is, you know, and that's what it is. And it's not, it, you know, I love that wine, but it, it is not, um, it's not how I would have steered it at a different time if I, maybe now. Um, but like, that's what wine is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, it's a moment, it's an experience. It's like a snapshot of where you are, you know, over, over this, this period of time of its life and uh, over a year. And, um, and that's the cool thing about it. It's kind of like plays, you know, you go and see a play and these people do the same play all the time, but like that night it's just for you, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's never gonna be exactly the same. So, so one of the things with, with, um, with the music part also is that for me, I, um, 
I've never really enjoyed the really kind of pretentious. It, it's not. It's not always pretentious, the, the seriousness of wine discussions, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, in terms of speak, talking with other winemakers and talking shop, like that's just talking shop, like that's your, you're sharing ideas or your opinions. Um, but the idea that the wine can be classist is, um, mm -hmm. is a bummer, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so when I started doing the pressing plant, Two things that were important to me were um, that I make a wine that's affordable. Um, I'd worked at, you know, I had helped, even after doing Harvest, I often worked helping with tastings at Archery Summit, and mm -hmm. those wines are very, very expensive. And, uh, and I don't know anybody who buys those wines. I mean, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do know people in the wine, you know, like, like but that's not, like, that's kind of not a regular thing for me. And so I really wanted to focus on making a 20 to $25 bottle of Pinot mm -hmm. that was um, a, a great value, that was w worth more than that in the spectrum of what it's priced. Mm -hmm. But you know, a lot of people I talk to, $20 is more than they usually spend mm -hmm. on a bottle of wine. And um, I, I wanted it to be, so I wanted it to be accessible, but I also uh, wanted people to not put it away for a couple of years. I really need people to buy it and come back and buy another bottle, you know, like if they liked it. And so that seemed like a better like marketing strategy for me being this one person company mm -hmm. who needed to keep moving wine. Um, and then also that other idea of that um, if besides telling people about the name, sometimes it doesn't even come up. Sometimes we're just talking about the wine. But if things got to, to a point where I didn't enjoy the conversation or or where I even felt uncomfortable like selling myself. You know, it's, it's awkward, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's still a little awkward. And uh, I could just talk about the music and I instantly felt like I could hear that music. I could share why I loved it so much, you know, like, oh, you know, the video's on the website, you should check it out. Like, oh, you like so-and-so, oh, you know, you know, you know this band that covered that song? You should check out the MC5 <laughs> version of Kick Out the Jams. Like, oh, you know, and you should see them when they play, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so it kind of just worked into this way that felt a lot more like me than when I came here and looked at what wines from Oregon look like. It almost feels more like craft, the craft beer industry. Mm -hmm. Like they get to have so much fun with their labels. It's not so, um, they can be a little irreverent. They can be just like of the moment. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. If it's um, not the same from each time, you know? Uh, and I try to express that too in the, you know, I don't, I don't source grapes from the same places each vintage. In order to make a, a, an affordable Pinot Noir, affordable, you know, in order to make hit my price point. Um, I, but to make a nice wine for this $20, I, uh, I have to kind of wait. My ideas that I kind of, I've always been a thrifter, like being a punk rock kid, you know, going to thrift shops, you know, just being more excited by, by things like that, getting a good deal. And so I took that experience and um, I learned to just be patient and I know enough people, knew enough people, um, who would hear about grapes that were for sale, mm -hmm. often at the last minute, and that those people, by that time, either some a buyer had fallen out, as is the case now in the Willamette Valley, there's often more fruit than was expected, um, and that I could, they'd be willing to sell it to me for 
a, a price that I could still afford to to buy them. Mm -hmm. And so I got some really great fruit for um, for an affordable price for mm -hmm. me. And um, and so unfortunately, that doesn't I, I can't sign contracts because I don't have I don't definitely have this mm -hmm. uh, idea. It, you know, from year to year, it changes a bit. And so it's but I found it's better for me to wait and that then more interesting things come up each time and sometimes it could be the same fruit but like it's not um it's more about trying to get the best thing i can in that moment that's mm -hmm. available and working with it um it gives me a disadvantage in from uh i worked for the Ponzi's off and on for years. And I've made most of my wine there. Louisa was like so generous in allowing me to make my wine alongside on my own time. You know, but like while I'm, while I'm doing harvest there. Um, and I, you know, the, the advantage of getting to work with the same vineyards year after year at some place like Ponzi is you really get to know that fruit. Mm -hmm. And you know kind of where it makes a turn sometimes mm -hmm. or what might be more reductive, might have that possibility and things. Um, but this is like new fruit coming at you each time, like, oh, surprise, you know? But the nice thing is when I worked at Northwest Wine Company, that's what we did. Mm -hmm. You know, we had 30-something clients, mm -hmm. and all this fruit came in, and you were just like, okay, go, you know? And so learning to do that is like an interesting challenge and a puzzle in itself. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay. You know, would I love to work with the same fruit all the time? Yes. <laughs> um, but that's not part of my, my plan that makes this work mm -hmm. in this way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, does, I don't even, sorry, I don't even remember what exactly the I, question was. I don't, I don't yeah, either, but that was, that was a great <laughs> answer either way, so I'm not worried about it. Um, how would you describe, you, you kind of talked a little bit about this, but how would you describe your winemaking philosophy? What is it you're trying for people to get out of your wine? Um, out of the pressing plant wine, I, I am aiming to make wine that is enjoyable now. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think at this price that people are um, gonna put this away. Uh, I also, one of the things we learned at, you know, in a marketing class at Davis was that 90 something percent, over 95% of people drink wine within 24 hours of buying it. So then it's kind of like, that's what's the home I'm making the wine for, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want it to be ready now, I want it to be approachable. Um, uh, I want it to be delicious now, you know? And so I tend to do a lower tannin extraction, uh, less aggressive punch downs, really aware of when I'm doing them. Um, as the alcohol increases, just kind of like keeping an eye on that, really tasting a lot, seeing where I can keep the roundness in the wine. I want to make a um, fairly fruit forward, oaked, but not not with oak being, uh, you know, one of the things that stands out in that, um, just in more traditional aged in oak barrels, mm -hmm. mostly neutral. And then I buy some new, you know, a small amount of new oak uh, with each vintage just mm -hmm. to have some things to play around with. Um, I like bright acidity. Um, but then I think that if I'm working on kind of like the roundness and um, approachability of the wine that uh, that the brightness for me helps helps me do a wine that I feel is true to, to my taste and interest uh, that's food friendly but that is also something that people can enjoy you know it's not like shrill mm -hmm. you know <laughs> or austere mm -hmm. yeah. you talked about the challenges of marketing uh, and selling wine uh, tell me about sort of some of your some of your uh, 
strategies for doing that? How, how have you gone about selling wine without having a tasting room, without having a formal place for people to buy wine? How do you go about getting your name out there and, and selling your wine? Um, I talked to a lot of other winemakers who are small and independent and asked them about how they did it and, um, and also um, for distributors uh, that they worked with that they thought might be a like my, like my wine and mm -hmm. things like that. So I spent a lot of time talking to people like John Groshaw and um, Anne Hubach, um, uh, Pam from Willful, um, you know, and then I still have the Sam and Cheryl and Louisa and people, but those are such bigger, you know, but to kind of understand how the system works mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, years ago, I started a tasting group with Drew Voigt and uh, Ben Castile and, and later Thomas Hausman and Steve Goff and um, Heather Perkin from Elk Cove and Darcy Pendergrass and um, uh, who else? Um, Eric from Now Jackson Wines, and, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so many people that like, they're there, they're resources. So I talked to a lot of people, but <clears throat> one of the things is that I think that my wine doesn't necessarily work in a fancy wine shop as well you know unless somebody really loves music and also kind of talks about that so i went to new seasons which is where like down the road i shop way too often at new seasons <laughs> and i asked them how you submit something and they told me you drop it off at the solutions counter and you fill out this little form and i did that and um, I heard back from them that they would love to take the wine, mm -hmm. and um, I think I checked off a lot of the boxes. I'm, I'm super local, you know, um, I'm solo owned, uh, I was new, um, I'm female owned, you know, I'm a female mm -hmm. winemaker, and, uh, and I have, I make a wine that um, 20 bucks for an Oregon Pinot for a Willamette Valley Pinot is, is a good deal, mm -hmm. you know, and they liked it. And um, so that really helped. That was like, okay, let's go, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then <clears throat> I approached Whole Foods later when I had more wine, when I'd actually had enough to sell in Whole Foods. And the, uh, the guy that buys the wine for the Northwest area was like, love it, love the idea, like, let's do it, you know. And so that was a different, it's, and I find them very different places, you know. I'm, I'm so thrilled that New Seasons took it early on and that, and then um, I did a lot of tastings, poured for a lot of customers. Um, when I pour at the store, I get to say like, oh yeah, this is my new seasons too. You know, like, oh, where do you make this? You know, I make it out in the valley and then I live just up the road, you know? Mm -hmm. And those are true things, you know? Um, and then also uh, Steve Jones at the Cheese Bar. I had worked at him when I had been hired to do a project of uh, designing um, a winery for uh, the store of Square Deal at the time that didn't end up happening, but I, I worked on that for a while. And <clears throat> Steve said I could come in and pour it for him, and he's the first person that ever like bought the wine, you know. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I really like it. And I was like, Oh, this is so great! Like you're just saying it, you know. I mean, it was just it was so nice. It was a place where I really wanted to be, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And now when I think about things. Um, I definitely get ideas when I hear that people involved are or were musicians, mm -hmm. um, that they love music. Um, one of my accounts, uh, I sell the wine at Aviv, which is a vegan Israeli restaurant in Southeast, 
and um, I've been vegetarian since like my second year in college mm -hmm. and um, I was eating there and I had just stopped to grab a bite and I'm sitting at a table next to a turntable I start looking through the records and they're really cool records <laughs> and like, some of them I own and some of them I'd like to own <laughs> and uh, I asked the person serving you know if I could um, come back and pour my wine and they said you know sure and I poured it and they were just like yep we are gonna pour it by the glass and they've been doing that now for a few years and so for me that's a place like that I think about because because I'm vegetarian mm -hmm. you know and records you know mm -hmm. and music so we've got all these these things and we did a we did a winemaker dinner winemaker restaurant dinner chef dinner uh, out at a animal sanctuary at Wildwood Animal Farm Sanctuary I think it's officially called something like that and um, you know, that's, I love animals, that's why I'm vegetarian, you know? <laughs> and uh, I grew up on a farm where we named the cows and then there might be one in the freezer. Mm -hmm. It would be just so sad, you know, so sad. Uh, so, so yeah, so there are things like that or um, there's a really sweet store called Mom and Pop that's just up the road and so like it's my neighborhood and they just opened, you know, a year or so ago, maybe it's two years now, I can't really, my t sense of time is really terrible. But um, being here in a neighborhood area and with someone that I connect with on uh, what they're interested about in wine and, and things like that mm -hmm. is, um, is really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, you described, the way you described the music industry, at least as you got into it, and sort of the wine industry as you got into it, are very, very similar to me. It sounds like, you know, finding a lot of people with a very one very big passion that you share and then kind of going from there. So tell me about the kind of similarities you found in working in a wine industry like this uh, and getting into the music industry when you did. Is there Are you feeling sort of similar feeling as you got into the industry? There are a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, the first similarity that I noticed is that um, like working with musicians, um, you know, most musicians and many people that have independent labels, you know, are, are kind of like one person, they're very mom and pop, mm -hmm. um, don't have business backgrounds. I don't have a business background. You know, I have experience in, in working in business, but like I, uh, in a business, in businesses. But, um, but a lot of musicians don't have that. And coming out here, a lot of, um, wineries are not really run in that way either you know they're um they're people that were interested in making wine and often did so on their own or with their families or with their partners um and then all of a sudden they were big enough to maybe before they i was gonna say to be able to afford to have a hire you know another employee but probably more it's like then they needed another employer, employee and they found the money somehow, you know. And um, so there's some of that kind of uh, at the beginning, you know, I'm, you know, in the, um, you know, early, early aughts, you know, this is a long time ago. Um, but there's kind of a lack of professionality at the time of where decisions and dealings were made kind of on instinct and sometimes were more personal, um, but that's, you know, that's, I mean, I was really used to that, and <laughs> I will say that those are kind of dysfunctional situations. I was very used to dysfunctional <laughs> situations, you know, and working with people who I just, 
admired so much what they did that 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 um, artisanship is that word art the the you know their craftsmanship they're all of it you mm -hmm. know the um, what they did was so special that it was worth dealing with mm -hmm. you know and so meeting a lot of people kind of that weren't necessarily um, people people <laughs> you know like that and musicians are the same way so many musicians like they do what they do like in this in this place inside and then it comes out and then they do it here and then they might do it on stage but then when they actually are interacting it's um, it's not what they want to be doing selling their own selves mm -hmm. you know that's mm -hmm. not what they do well and that's okay some do but you know um, so there was that um, the, the DIY independent kind of thing, the doing things for less money, you know, being able to figure out ways to make things work, mm -hmm. you know, was very much the, the Willamette Valley, the Oregon wine industry to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that was really what I did. And even when I had bands on major labels, for me, it was more interesting to try to find uh, interesting, cool, like less expensive things to do than to do something flashy that didn't represent the band, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Pixies Frisbees. Why? You know, like, like, okay, but like, why? You know, like, like, what about something that actually looks more like, like that, or like that they do, or that they, uh, Charles from the Pixies is really into UFOs, like, why don't we do something with that? You know, like, like something that actually is connected, or uh -huh. so, something, you know, I don't know. So, there are those kind of things, anyway, um, and, and here, stringing it together, and being able to make something really wonderful, still by, by not having to have a lot of money mm -hmm. to do it. Um, it is a lot of money, but it's, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I also personally really liked the social side of things. Um, the, with bands, um, whether it was being on tour, or working with other people who are writers, and um, uh, you know that you're pitching to that you're sharing love for bands with there's often you know a lot of um, socializing and uh, dinners and um, hanging out at uh, shows and touring mm -hmm. and I toured with a lot of the bands that I worked with and um, and it was fun and it was a different world and it was um, yeah, it was it was fun. It was a little decadent, you know. And then when I came out here, that the wine industry is a lot like that too. You know, here's this thing we're all talking about wine, and we're having it at lunch, and we're um, we're uh, having dinners, you know, that are based around the wines and opening all the wines, you know, and <laughs> and uh, and. And being loopy and having fun and and so those there was that too of that that they're both very kind of like loose industries in that way in mm -hmm. terms of this area then mm -hmm. and um, yeah and I think that all of that worked with kind of like what I had been doing and everything mm -hmm. so yeah you mentioned coming in and, and being conscious uh, of, of, of being a woman in the industry and have, feeling like you had to be able to keep up and, and, and do things at the right speed. So tell me about your experience now being in the industry as long as you have, being a woman, especially now a one-woman shop in the wine, in Oregon wine industry. Um, I think that being a woman in the wine, being a, a, a female winemaker is um, like a fantastic place to be mm -hmm. at this point. I think people, um, thank goodness, Many people want to be very supportive of that. 
you know, and they think it's really cool. People are like, oh, that's so cool, you know, and it's like, oh, that's a new fear, you know, it's just, you know, I just am, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I uh, can't change that, and uh, I mean, you can, but, you know, um, so it's, um, yeah, I find more support, uh, I find sometimes that someone will look at the wine and say, I've only ever been asked this by older white men, um, who makes your wine? And I'm like, I, I make my wine. And they're like, where do you make it? Where's your wine? I go, you know, and I, I, I you know, go, I, I make most of it at Ponzi, mm -hmm. um, where I work off and on, you know? And it's like, oh, Ponzi makes your wine. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow! You know, wow. And it, you know, it's, uh, I take it a little personally, mm -hmm. and there's um, my feelings. <laughs> and, uh, and it seems really wrong. But, you know, that is so not common. Mm -hmm. um, at least here, mm -hmm. it's not common. Um, I, uh, I, I one, one big account for me is a store in New York called Bottle Rocket, who are just amazing, and uh, I love them so much, and they love music, and um, every year on International Women's Day, you know, either my wine or a picture of me makes it in their um, collage of other women that uh, make alcohol mm -hmm. that they sell, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I, I love that, you know. Um, they, I also get a shout out during record day, uh, so <laughs> I, I'm covered, you know. Um, so I think it's actually a nice thing, um, you know, like it's, it can be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes for me, I, I think there's a, I think today in terms of sales, uh, I, I, I don't feel that there's an issue, like with winemaking, I don't think about it. Um, but with sales, sometimes I, um, let me think of what the thing is with this. Um, I am not, I'm really one of those people that's like, oh wow, I'm really glad you like it, thanks. Like genuinely happy to hear that somebody likes the wine. Not because I think that the wine is not likable or it's a big surprise to me. But it's really nice to hear that, you know, when whether somebody's surprised based on the label or the price, or the, that they don't usually like Pinot. I hear that a lot, you know, um, because a lot of people have an idea that Pinot is um, Pinot Noir is like thin, you know, and um, and austere, and and that's certainly you know there's a wide range of Pinots out there um, that are still very characteristically Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's. Um, I can be not as, uh, yeah, I can do that, mm -hmm. you know? And I find that sometimes that's a male, uh, in, in male characteristic sometimes in, in this business um, of just like saying right away, like, yep, I can do that, even though they've never done it before. Whereas I tend to be like, oh, I haven't ever done that before, but you know, I, uh, I'm pretty sure that I could do that and uh, let me get back to you, you know? And so there's those kind of things that maybe can, that, that maybe I don't, take advantage of some things as much just based on things, but you know, that's why I, I the first person I ask about how to do things, um, when I have questions about sales and marketing and things is John Groshop because he's, he's just like that, he's super down to earth mm -hmm. and, uh, and he does that in a genuine way that mm -hmm. is so true. So anyway, then I feel like I'm not just like, yeah, I'm just not like sales, 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 you know? Um, and some people are great at that mm -hmm. and they do really well mm -hmm. with it, mm -hmm. you know? 
Those people are going to be very surprised when they find out who makes Ponzi's wines. If they are surprised, if they're shocked that a woman can make wine, that's going to be a big surprise for them. Yeah. Um, tell me about the the growth of your company and where you're kind of looking at as you look ahead uh, for the next ten years. Um. I right now my current vintage is uh, 1,300 cases, mm. and I am now focused mostly on Pinot Noir. Um, off in the Willamette Valley and I, I've had an idea for a little while that I would like to work either with some Southern Oregon or some fruit from the gorge mm -hmm. um, because I think it would be fun and because it's just a different varietal although I always like Pinot I feel like like you know like like I feel super comfortable with Pinot Noir you know and super excited by it still and, and all of that but the um, but because of the fires uh, it hasn't, since I've been thinking about that, there hasn't been a good year to be buying fruit that isn't smoky. Mm -hmm. and, there, the, and that may be our future. So I don't know what will happen with that. I think it would be fun to do some different varietals, but again, uh, right now, what I find when I, you know, I'm self-distributed in Oregon, um, so I deliver all my wine, I do all my tastings, you know, so it's, it's just me. And so when I pour for people, um, I have found that when I have two wines or even three wines, for a little while I was doing like two vintages of Pinot as one was on its way out and one was on its way in, and a Riesling or a Chardonnay, the more wines I pour, the less wine I sell because people can't decide. Like they might like all of them, but then they can't decide. Um, and when I, when I pour one wine, people are like yes or no, and a lot of times it's yes. Mm -hmm. I sell a lot of wine when I pour wine, and, and it's great, you know. And so right now, um, I need for my business to continue to grow mm -hmm. and hopefully to grow to where I can afford the person that I need <laughs> to, to have um, and, and to continue growing in production um, and to be growing in distribution and um, being my ideal thing, I, I've always wanted to like have a partner in this. Um, I would love to find a partner, not necessarily that one person takes over this area and one person takes over that area, but like the idea of like bouncing ideas off one another and the things that you come up with, which are neither like what one person had an idea of or the other person, but like it, like the creative aspect of it is just amazing, you know, plus some people are better at some things than others, you know, I, I still... I like making wine on my own. It's not a compromise, you know, and you got to pick a side, you know, mm -hmm. like I can just do it and do the best that I can. And that's like good enough, mm -hmm. you know, and someone else could do that too. But I, I don't think I would want to debate that, you know, so, but the, there's room for that. But like, that's how I would like to see this grow is to, is to have room for others who can, I'm, I can get super overwhelmed. You know, and and when that happens, um, it's harder. What that does is that I um, I double down on sales and deliveries and the things that I know I need to do right now in front of me, mm -hmm. and it uh, I get away from the creative part that's really necessary to grow and necessary for me to wake up every day and say like, oh yay, I get to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's where I hope that I go with this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're coming up, you're right around 20 years in the industry now. Uh, yeah, tell scary. Me, <laughs> <laughs> tell, 
Tell me about what you've seen change in the Oregon wine industry since you got into it. Um, certainly there are a lot more wineries, uh, but I'm one of them, <laughs> you know? Um, it's kind of that thing about when people talk about Portland growing, I'm like, oh, Portland's just gotten this way. And it's like, yeah, but there are more bands and there's better art and there's, you know, there are more opportunities for my friends who are artists and musicians and people like me to do my own thing. And, um, so I think that what has stayed the same is that a lot of the players and the pioneers are still, a lot of them mm. are still here, especially the, a lot of the pioneers. Mm. Um, what's change, what's changing are, um, what I first saw change was the acquisition of vineyards and to be managed by, um, you know, a larger um, vine viticulture vineyard ma you know management companies mm -hmm. and um, uh, and more machine harvested fruit, mm. um, which I mean if if you're making grocery store wine not new seasons in Whole Foods but like you know you're making like you're making canned wine you know like like there's nothing wrong with that I think the packaging is like really cool you know. Um, but you can't afford to make wine in the same more traditional way mm -hmm. with barrel ferments, you know. So, so um, the way that grapes are being grown is different. The, uh, who owns those vineyards is different. Is changing um, whether things are fermented in the same way or in or now some wineries have like giant tanks that rival, you know, some of the giant wineries in Napa mm -hmm. and. Um, and so those, those things have changed. Um, California wineries, of course, coming up here. Uh, French wineries coming here. You know, it's changing things. Not, not um, you know, there's some better and some worse for all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that one of the things I've seen change is I have seen more people who have gone to school or who have had experience in the industry go to school, mm -hmm. you know, to, to learn more about the wine that they're making and to have like a, a really complete view of of their winemaking process and of grape growing, mm -hmm. and um, I've seen that change with vineyard owners as well. Who, when I started, I remember being warned, like, so you got to be careful because a vineyard owner will be like, "You ready to pick the fruit? You ready to pick the fruit?" Because like I'm supposed to be in like whatever country that's warm, right this week, you know. <laughs> and so that was their idea of a picking decision, and of course, that's not. You know, I mean, Pinot Noir is a tricky grape, and we have lived in a tricky climate that was based on um, when the rains started, mm -hmm. and uh, not not in the past few years as much. But um, so so yeah, so that's um, that's changed that idea that vineyard owners are working more closely with winemakers mm -hmm. and wineries and that they're often hiring people who are uh, experts in doing it to kind of turn over some of it, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. using less pesticides, uh, more importance on an awareness of live and biodynamic and organic, mm -hmm. you know, um, the idea of less sulfur rather than, um, rather than it being an organic wine, uh, just trying to be uh, more minimum, less intervention, mm -hmm. uh, doing what you need to in a year with a lot of botrytis, you might need to add sulfur, that's the best thing for the wine, and, and uh, when you don't, you don't, you know, native ferments, 
um, doing things doing things because you should. And then there are a lot of people in the industry who are doing really interesting things like, like natural wines, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm so interested in what they're doing. I'm not interested in making them from my, from my label mm -hmm. um, that doesn't fit what I'm doing, you know. Um, but I love that people are doing it and that it, it opens the field mm -hmm. of what Willamette Valley can, uh, what can be produced mm -hmm. here. In Oregon in general. Sure. And what do you see as you look ahead in the Oregon wine industry for like the next decade? What do you see happening to the industry? Oh, that's such a tough one. Um, I think that there's so many changes right now that it's kind of a really good time to be present right now and be paying attention and to be participating mm -hmm. um, in the sales of wineries and vineyards. Um, but also... I think the climate change, obviously, is going to, I'm sure everybody talks about climate change and uh, like global warming, like it's changing things, you mm -hmm. know, and we're not, we're, we're not picking for the same reasons. We don't, we're not picking at the same time. We're not picking in the same month. Um, and we're not producing the same style of Pinot Noir that uh, that, that cooler climate produced. and. Um, and probably some other varietals that I haven't been working with and haven't had experience are probably able to be grown here now, mm -hmm. you know. So, so I think that there will be changes in what you know as people move up from California, varietals will move up from Southern Oregon and 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 other places. And um, I think that it will be it will be different. I think we'll have a lot of big companies, big wineries, and then we will always have these people that are trying really innovative things and doing things that are outside of, of those big companies. Um, and maybe Oregonians will start moving to, you know, BC or something. <laughs> Okanagan, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. If just for like, not having to have air conditioning in your house, you know. When I moved here, you didn't have an air conditioner. I don't need an air conditioner. Mm -hmm. It's a foolish decision not to have <laughs> one these days. It's all changed. Used to be like changed, changed. five hot days of summer. You were fine. I know the summer. <laughs> the summer, yeah. Huh. We're so not much, to August yet. August, so September. Uh, so, what advice would you have for someone who wanted into the Oregon wine industry today? Um, I think that doing a harvest is a great thing to do. Um, I think it's a. I still think it's a great reality check, and I still think it's the reality of what people do. <clears throat> um, like. I have to do all of that stuff still. My, when, you know, in those days of Willa Kenzie, my mom, I called my mom like during that harvest and I was like, my mom's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm so tired, it's so hard, you know? And my mom said, you know, one day you're gonna have other people to have do that cleaning and to do that. And I was like, okay, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I have had other people at different jobs but now I don't have other people, you know? And so, and then I'm like, oh, I get to clean the tanks. My tanks are so much smaller, you know? And uh, they don't have to put ladders in them, these little ten, ten and a half fermenters and things. And, you know, so, so I think I have always felt from when I got my first job in the industry, I, in the music industry, I had done an internship to uh, my jobs within wine have been with internships. And I think that getting experience um, being curious, 
coming there without any sort of attitude of like what you know, but asking a lot of questions. Um, I think that's really hard because we all come in with like, we know all this stuff about wine and we want to make sure that other people know that, that we're part of it somehow. But like, I think that like, I wish that I had, I asked a lot of questions uh, early on, but at the same time, um, I wish that I had not thought that I was supposed to know things. Mm -hmm. That how would I have ever had a chance to know those things, you know? So it was kind of a weird idea. I think I would have um, relaxed into the job a little bit better and maybe learned some more things. Mm. I mean, it's okay to like mess up. <laughs> Not mess up in a big way. Mm -hmm. Other people do it, you know, but um, you know where you dent tanks or uh, open a valve, hit a valve with the forklift. I've seen that happen and that's, it's uh, traumatic for people and, yeah, and difficult, you know, but, um, but yeah, being slow, being careful, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and working at a winery. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was the biggest su surprise for you about the job of a winemaker? Um, I think the, from, from before I did it, I think the biggest surprise was how physical the job was. Mm -hmm. I really thought that this was going to be much more um, science, and it is science, but like I thought, I didn't think I'd be working in a lab, but um, I definitely know people I went to school with who have to write work orders because it's a union situation, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, it's so hands-on, and it's so physical, and, uh, uh, and I love that. And I didn't know that I would love that. You know, mm -hmm. like I love that, mm -hmm. and so that was that part of it. Um, in terms of having being a winemaker with my own brand, mm -hmm. um, the most eye-opening thing is how people do this if they don't have a lot of money, uh, because the idea of making wine in this vintage that will be bottled next vintage next year and then release probably the following year, and then basing this next year in the middle, how much you're gonna make based on these sales that haven't even started yet, you know? That has been, I've been a little up and down with that and um, still learning, you know, still finding where that spot is. It's not, for me, it has not been a linear way and sometimes I haven't had money mm -hmm. to do a harvest and I skipped a harvest, mm -hmm. you know, and, but I have plenty of wine to sell so there's no problem, um, you know, so and it's okay, mm -hmm. it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, yeah, you know that thing, you know, uh, how do you make a small fortune in the wine industry, you start with a big fortune, mm -hmm. like a lot of us didn't start with a big fortune, you know, we started from, with a loan from, from people that wanted us to help us succeed and um, end up with other loans and then making decisions based on those things instead of uh, what you'd like to be doing, mm -hmm. but you, you do it and that's business, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's all the questions that I have for okay. you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank is, you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have talk, talked about? We have open mic, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me think. Um, will say that the only thing that I haven't, that I didn't talk about, that I almost mentioned during that is that, um, is that pretty much, well, like two years after I started the pressing plant, 
that um, that I've been a sober winemaker, mm -hmm. and um, and that is an unusual thing to be in this business. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I got sober in the end of 2013 after I already had some wine made and some wine in barrel and. Um, wasn't sure really what happened, what would happen from there in terms of wine for me, but um, having had a more traditional training at UC Davis and learned to taste and spit, where and you don't drink while you work and things like that, um, it's been a really amazing way to still participate in this. And um, you know, I still make wine exactly how I made wine before. Mm -hmm. I just don't uh, spend time drinking it and uh, feeling the effects of it. <laughs> and, um, and I don't socialize as much with people in the industry, which is um, sad, you know, like it, but it just kind of makes sense because there's that frenzy of excitement, you know, as I was talking about before. And, um, but sometimes people think like, how could you do that? And I guess I wanted to share that because um, this is a job that one gets experience and training in and that, that that's not necessary and yet this is also an industry where uh, a lot of people drink a lot and that there's still space for us to do it. I would say my business has, um, has gone incredibly well after that decision and, my, and when I get up I'm not just happy about that I get to make this wine, you know, and uh, things, yeah, things for me felt easier and um, Sometimes I feel like that's a funny, it's not a marketing point. Um, you know, you'll love my wine, but I don't drink it. You know, like you should drink it, but I'm not going to. Um, but it's more of like to do something well and to be able to stand behind it and be proud of it um, and to no longer engage in a part of the industry that. Um, that slowed my life down and mm -hmm. kept me from being able to be present. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I get there are a few of us now. And it's kind of exciting when I read about it in other places or I run into other people or other people share that with me. And, um, and yeah, I think that that's, that's a part of my life and very much a part of uh, my being a winemaker today. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, that's uh, incredibly positive. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your sitting down with us and giving us all these wonderful stories and answers. Thank you. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.